Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey there, I'm Grant Wall. Welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. This week's interview guest is Michael McCambridge, a massive Liverpool fan from Austin, Texas, who's writing a season-long letter exchange about Liverpool with Neil Atkinson of the Anfield Wrap for the Liverpool Echo website. Michael has a long history of quality work as a writer and author. Quick reminder, if you like the podcast, it would really help us if you go to Apple Podcasts and provide a rating and a review. It helps people find us, and we'd appreciate you recommending the podcast to someone you know. Onward. Our guest today is Michael McCambridge. He is a terrific author and writer who lives in Austin, Texas. He's also a massive Liverpool fan who picked a good year to write a season-long weekly letter exchange about Liverpool with Neil Atkinson of the Anfield Rap, which you can find online at the Liverpool Echo site. Like me, Michael is a Kansas City native. We're both diehard Kansas City Chiefs fans, and he has a new book out on the 50th anniversary of the Chiefs Super Bowl title called 69 Chiefs, A Team, A Season, and the Birth of Modern Kansas City. Michael, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Grant. Lots to talk about here, but I want to start with Liverpool. Um, You have picked a very good season to do a weekly letter exchange, but tell me first off, how did you get attached to Liverpool FC? Why this club? Oh, it's a long story, but um, my best friend, Rob Minter in Dallas, Um, was a Liverpool fan back in the 90s when you could only pick up games via shortwave radio (laughs) on the BBC. And so I noted his obsessions. And then I had been soccer curious for some time, saw Brazil-Holland play in the World Cup quarterfinal in Dallas in 94. Good game. That was an amazing experience. And then in 98, I saw Michael Owen for England Um, just slicing open Argentina. And I said, you know, I want more of that. And um, Owen was playing for Liverpool then, and Rob was already a Liverpool fan. And so thus came the the blessing and curse of being a Liverpool fan. (laughs) And how many times over the years have you been over to Liverpool now? I've made, I have made one, um, I have made one pilgrimage to Liverpool. I went there in March of 2018. Mm Mm-hmm and got to see Liverpool play Watford in a snowstorm. That was sort of the coronation of the Egyptian king. Mo Salah scored four goals. And it was just a, it was a remarkable trip. It was an amazing experience. And I got to know Neil Atkinson of the Anfield Rap um, in connection with that trip. And when this opportunity came up last summer, um, the Liverpool Echo and and their American site, liverpool.com, wanted to do sort of a season-long exchange between um, somebody right in the heart of the city and some far-flung Liverpool fan. And Austin being 4,000 miles away from Liverpool, I 
I qualified as far flung, if nothing else. <laughs> well, I do love what you're doing with these season long letters. I, I really do suggest that listeners read them. Um, it's it's just really fun, and I, I do know both of you guys. I'm friends with both of you guys, but you don't need to be just to to get what it's like to be following this Liverpool season from Neil's perspective, literally on site, and from your perspective in Austin, Texas, as it has become so much easier to to follow the Premier League and Liverpool, you know, really forensically from a distance very far away, like Austin, Texas. Um, how did this idea for the season-long series come about? What did you want to achieve with it? Well, let me just say this, Grant. I, I still don't know if people here in the States appreciate how much easier it is for us to watch every game of our favorite team than it is if you're in England. Yep. You know, it, it's it's much easier for me to go down to the pub and watch all 34 Liverpool games this year here in Austin, Texas, than if I was actually living in Liverpool proper. <laughs> so that's so that's one thing. I think um, the inspiration for this series was in 2015, the writer Carl Uwe Kanausgaard and Frederick Eklund did an exchange of letters uh, during the 2014 World Cup. It was called Home and Away, mm-hmm. Writing the Beautiful Game. And they did this series of letters over the course of the summer and the tournament. And I think the inspiration for this was, could we do the same thing about Liverpool, only with less bleak existential nihilism <laughs> that you would have with two literary lights like that? And so so that was it. But I think we also, um, I talked to Neil about it a little bit beforehand, but we didn't want to we sort of wanted to keep our cards um, hidden to some extent, but I know there were things we wanted to work through. Mm-hmm. The nature of um, what fandom is like in the 21st century, how almost any story that is covered in the modern media universe is by definition overcovered. Um, whether you still can feel connected to an enterprise in the modern age of of capitalism run amok. And I think obviously Liverpool is one of those cases where you can. And just what is involved with our devotion, our attention, our love of this club and this particular team um, right now. And we've gone in some interesting directions, um, but it's, the, the spine through this has been how two reasonably intelligent thinking people can spend so much of their time, so much of their energy, so much of their interior life thinking about this group of athletes. And what does that say for better or worse about the athletes? And what does it say about us? We're still working through that now, but it's, as you say, it's been, it's been sort of a dream season because other than losing a, a shootout in the charity shield against Man City, there's only really been one setback um, against Napoli in the Champions League. So I imagine there's going to be some losses coming in the near future. Um, but if not, that's okay too. <laughs> <laughs> As someone who's followed this, you know, this Liverpool team for, for many years, like, what has this season been like, man? I mean, like, it's it's insane right now. They've only dropped two points in the league, a league that they haven't won for 30 years. Uh, they're in a decent position to make a run for another European title, which they won last year. They've been to two straight Champions League finals. They've got the, basically what most people think is the best coach in world soccer maybe you could argue the best coach in any sport right now yeah you could shorten the sentence uh, <laughs> and like is it is it possible to be enjoying this as much as you would like to be knowing that there's this also history of liverpool in the last decade or so not making it in the league well, you know the you know the stats as well as I do. The um, there's only been three times in the last decade that the team leading the Premier League 
at Christmas time has not won the title. And all three times it was Liverpool. So <laughs> also being a fan of the Kansas City Chiefs who haven't been to the Super Bowl since 1969 season, um, one does not take anything for granted in sports. And so one of the things I've noticed both here and around the world is Liverpool fans are not counting any chickens yet. They are just doing the math. They are seeing, you know, they're 13 points clear now. Um, but everybody knows that that can change. Everybody knows that Man City has the sort of team that could go on a run and win 10 games in a row. Doesn't look like that's going to happen. But to, to answer your question, I think this has been a magnificent season and it has been unexpected because last year was the best Liverpool team in my memory. Um, it was the best Liverpool team in a lot of people's memory. They had 97 points. Only two teams have had a higher total in the history of the Premier League, and that was Manchester City the last two seasons. Mm -hmm. So you could have expected the Liverpool team to be just as good and have fewer points. You could have expected the Liverpool team to take, take a step back. There were no big summer transfer acquisitions. But instead, they have just marched on they have gotten even better. And from a fan's perspective, the, the other component that you have to mention is this is maybe the most fun to watch team in mm -hmm. the entire world. Mm -hmm. um, the teamwork is magnificent. The play is thrilling and exciting. The personalities are compelling. Um, and they are just so much fun to watch that you, you know, there've been 34 matches this, this season already and games every few days in December. And you just find yourself looking forward to, Oh, it's another game. It's great. And that, you know, that's not been frankly my experience as a Liverpool fan for much of this century because Liverpool has had some pretty dreary teams over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing to root for Paul Koncheski and, <laughs> And Joe Cole, and you know, uh, so th there've been some there've been some grim years, but this is is sort of the platonic ideal of of what you want a soccer team to be. And as you said, the coach um, has made um, the whole greater than the sum of the parts. It's just been the most fun um, I've had in the past year is watching Liverpool. Well, let's talk about the coach. Uh, you know, like there's a lot of big name coaches who to me, it seems like have failed to adapt in the last few years to what I would call the modern game. So Jose Mourinho, um, Arsene Wenger, Carlo Ancelotti, who keeps sort of moving down the ladder. Now he's at Everton. Um, and it seems like Guardiola and Klopp and Grant, they've got a ton of financial support, but they seem to adapt to to what we would call the modern game. What is it about Klopp that has been so special, in your opinion? I think he understands the role of the modern athlete and understands that the notion of the manager as genius Svengali Martinet is overrated. And so I don't think he is as prone to the egotism that has undermined other managers in other settings, such as Jose Mourinho and his, you know, some of his recent stints. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that's part of it. But I also think there is an authenticity about Klopp. And, you know, I'll be interested to I'll be interested to read what your impressions were of your time with him when you uh, went to Liverpool to write about him. But Coming out next week, by the way, online, I just found out my story on Klopp. Excellent. I'll be looking forward to that. But I think that, I think that he is somebody who loves the game, loves the competition, but also understands that there are going to be things that he cannot control. And that is maddening to coaches because coaches are control freaks. <laughs> but I think Klopp has a better perspective on that um, and has a 
you know, there there is such a humanity to him. Mm-hmm. I think that um, players recognize that. The certainly the supporters recognize that because they revere him in Liverpool. And I, I can't tell you the number of times I've watched a Klopp press conference or seen a post game interview and thought, yes, that's that's exactly what I want our manager to say. That's exactly the right point to make. And you just always feel better when he's around. And, you know, he's got a he's got a reputation as a motivator, right? Because mm-hmm. of all the gesticulations and running up and down the touchline. But I, I think the thing I've learned watching almost every Liverpool game for the last few years is he is an underrated tactician. Yes. He knows the game and he is able to make mid-game adjustments very well. I won't say he's the best in the world. I'm just saying he's underrated and better at it than he's often given credit for. Yeah, I think his intelligence gets lost a little bit in the focus on emotion, that sort of thing. Exactly. Uh, yeah, another thing I found interesting about Klopp, just observing him over the last few years, is he almost reminds me of American sports coaches in in something that I've noticed that's very different with European soccer coaches at the highest level, is that European soccer coaches almost never take the blame for when things go wrong at a press <laughs> yes. conference. And they'll blame, like Mourinho will blame the club for not buying the players he wanted or, you know, just do some weird thing blaming the other team or never gets up there and takes responsibility for a loss or a bad performance. And that happens in the U.S. I mean, like, I, I see coaches all the time. I think of Roy Williams at North Carolina. I got out coached tonight. Like, he'll, he'll do that. And do I actually think he believes that? I don't know. But you don't see that. And, and with Klopp, actually, occasionally you do see that. And I think that's one of the reasons so many American coaches have, have been drawn to Klopp and have sort of made a point of saying they really like Klopp. Steve Kerr would be uh, – mm-hmm would be example a of that but there have been other coaches in other sports that have sort of made a point of singling out Klopp as somebody they admire I think I think that's it I think that that sense that you get in American sports of after the game is over the scoreboard says what the scoreboard says and it is ungracious and unhelpful to whine about the refereeing or whine about the weather or whine about the injuries and I think Klopp has internalized that. At the same time, um, he is – you don't get the sense that the press conferences are entirely sending a message to the team. You get the sense that he's trying to be as candid as he can be in that setting. Mm-hmm. And that is that is refreshing. Yeah. Um, in terms of some of these topics that you wanted to get into in – the letters you're exchanging with Neil. I, I, I've read them. They're, they're fantastic. Like, what have you been most satisfied with in terms of getting into areas that, that you find particularly interesting about fandom, about Liverpool, where maybe you even took a risk and didn't know if it might pan out, but it did? <clears throat> it's, been, it's been a chance to get into greater depth the not just what goes on during the games, but the way a team you love occupies your mind the other six days of the week, or if you've got a schedule like Liverpool's had, the other three days of the week, since it seems like they're playing games every yeah. other day. Um, and just to be able to dig deeper into, well, Liverpool's captain, Jordan Henderson, um, is both revered and oft criticized by the same group of fans and to get to see the way he has developed over the years and to get to dig deeply on a game by game basis into what he brings to the team, why some of his qualities are still underappreciated. Um, getting to that level has been really rewarding and you know, Neil is a much more astute student of the tactics of the game than I am. Um, and it's been great hearing 
his perspective. And I, I think the other thing is um, about this team, even uh, friends of mine who are soccer fans but not Liverpool fans, sort of like Liverpool. They're not hated in the way that a lot of people hated Manchester City or a lot of people hated Real Madrid during the era of the Galacticos um, because they're so much fun to watch. And getting, uh, getting the opportunity to write about those players, those distinctive, unique, expressive players um, has been a lot of fun. I mean, I, uh, we, we had one exchange of letters early in the campaign where I asked, I asked Neil who his favorite Liverpool player was because I truly didn't know. Mm-hmm. And he chose Mohamed Salah for many good reasons, among them being just sort of the, the, the scope of the followers of Liverpool just because of where Salah is from, what his faith is, what that has meant, um, not just to the world and Liverpool followers around the world, but what that has meant in Liverpool proper. And it was a great perspective and a great give and take. I remember going to Liverpool uh, to do a story on Salah for our 2018 World Cup preview at Sports Illustrated. And, and I met with Neil then. You connected me with him. And it was really interesting stuff about uh, at a time when uh, you know, there was uh, Brexit, there was a lot of stuff happening in England, a lot of resistance to people from the Middle East, to to Muslims, that at least in Liverpool, which Neil characterized to me as because it's a port city, there's always been a bit more interaction with the world than than there is in some other parts of the UK. Which is fair, yes. Um, But that, you know, that Salah and his success had actually caused people there to to look at things in a different light to some extent you know you don't want to oversell it but to some extent well i would say i would agree with that and i would also say that i i also don't want to undersell that too one of the things that i learned as i was doing research for some of my other books especially the book i wrote about the nfl america's game was that Sometimes sports fans get to a position of enlightenment not because they read the newspaper every day or follow closely political arguments, but because they see the humanity in an athlete they love. Mm. And so there were people in Boston in the 60s who could not hear the words of Martin Luther King, but grew to like and admire and eventually respect and get a measure of understanding for Bill Russell. Hmm. And so they were enlightened by that. There were people in Cleveland who had who could not abide Malcolm X, but learned to respect and appreciate Jim Brown and came to a position of some measure of enlightenment about race and the relationship between the races in America because of this athlete. So I think that I agree, you shouldn't oversell it, but I do think athletes can change people's minds. And I think that the people who, the tribes that follow English soccer are on the whole more enlightened than they were 30 or 40 years ago when it was 11 white British players walking out onto the pitch to be cheered by 50,000 white British males. And that's one of the great things about globalization, and it's one of the great things about soccer is it's this great melting pot of different nationalities and viewpoints and perspectives. And seeing that in Liverpool is one of the things I love about Liverpool. And that internationalization, yeah, of the of, the, of English soccer, that's a fairly recent development. I remember going over there in the late 90s, and I picked Chelsea back then as my team, and they were seen as that was the international team. They've got all the Italians. But there really weren't any other teams at that point or many that had a lot of players from the continent or elsewhere. Exactly. And that has changed um, 100%. And the Premier League is much better for that, as I'm sure you would would test. Um, Who's your favorite Liverpool player right now? Oh, I would probably have to say... All else being equal, it's it's Virgil van Dyke just because he is 
such a I'm sure my blood pressure has gone down since Virgil van Dyke has been on the Liverpool side, but he's also such a paragon of metrosexual badassery <laughs> and and so much fun to watch and one of the only people on the planet who doesn't look ridiculous with a man bun. So I would have to go big verge, but I was talking, I had a dinner party last week cause, uh, friend of mine who's a Liverpool fan was back in town. And so it was a bunch of Liverpool obsessives. And one of the things somebody brought up is there is literally no one on this team that is unlikable. And, right. you know, how often can you say that about a modern team at the elite level of professional sports? <laughs> but it's true. They're all, I mean, I can see, I can see people like, uh, Scruffy Andy Robertson would not be among the favored um, opponents of other teams, but everybody on this team is you, you can get behind. No, yeah, there don't seem to be any jerks. Nobody's biting anybody anymore. Um, Nobody's biting anybody, and that's a good place to start, right? <laughs> um, as someone who follows Liverpool so closely, what are some things about this season that have surprised you? I think that the fact that the team has gotten better without any major additions in the offseason is one of the things that logically ought to happen because the team is, you know, it is now a, a more experienced team, but it's skewed a little bit younger in recent years. That's been one thing. Uh, the other thing is this sense of usually in – in modern soccer, and we see this a lot in the other leagues that aren't as competitive as the Premier League, um, the best teams just roll over other teams. 5-0, 6-0, 8-0. And so there's this huge, monstrous goal differential. But Liverpool has had a lot of one-goal wins this year. Mm -hmm. And part of that is they have a terrific back line, They've got Van Dyke. They've got one of the best goalkeepers in the world in Allison Becker. But part of it is that sense of this team, which used to play just games that were drunk. I mean, the the opener against Arsenal a few years ago that finished four to three, that was thrilling. But it was also I, I needed to lay down with a cold compress after that. It was it was difficult to watch, um, and and they don't do that as much anymore because they they have learned under Klopp and with the personnel how to manage games, how to see games out, but they still have that that indescribable, ineffable quality that allows them to come up with an equalizer late when they need it, the winning goal in stoppage time. And, you know, you see it once, you see it twice, you think, okay, well... It's just a it's a coincidence. But to see it over and over again, a team seeing out one goal wins, a team getting a late goal when they need it, it's something about the team. It's that belief. And seeing that grow and realizing that's something that's um, that they can I don't want to say do at will, but they can often summon is just one of the most enjoyable things in sports, getting to watch that on a weekly basis. Now, you're in Austin, Texas. How do you consume Liverpool games? Where do you do it? Uh, have you been in some unlikely places to watch Liverpool games? You know, I think the, the, the place that people used to go was a place downtown called Fado, which was a really good, really good Irish pub. But it, one of the problems was there was not a single good spot to watch soccer. There were no big screens and so the crowd was sort of dissipated all around. But now, for the last couple of years, the official Liverpool Supporters Club goes to uh, a tavern called B.D. Riley's up uh, by Mueller, where the old airport is. Mm -hmm. And they've got one very large screen, a bunch of other screens around, but one very large screen. And so you do get a sense of the assembled masses um, all in there, all focused on the same thing. And you know how it was, Grant. I mean, I can remember not that terribly long ago where 
you would just be lucky to find a sports bar yeah. open at 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning. And then, you know, there would be you and two or three other drunk English expats, and maybe they would have your game on, maybe they wouldn't. But, you know, the the fire code limit at B.D. Riley's is 247, and there have been days where they're packed and people are out on the terrace watching on the screen outside, and it is, it is a testament to how far soccer has come in the United States. And I mentioned this in a, in a note to Neil a few weeks ago. I can remember when you would go into a city, and I've watched Liverpool in probably two dozen different cities in the country. You would go to a city and you would say, okay, where's the soccer bar? Mm-hmm. But now when I go back to Kansas City, which I'm going to be doing this weekend, there's not just a soccer bar. There's a Liverpool bar. There's a Chelsea bar. There's an Arsenal bar. And that, that didn't exist even 10 years ago. I've noticed that in New York too. I mean, and, and now here, there, you know, there's multiple Arsenal right. bars and multiple Liverpool bars. So there's there's some that stand stand out. You and I saw a Liverpool game. Uh, Carragher's, yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 yet also too, like like you go to Lubbock, Texas, every once in a while, like <laughs> and and you're able to find a place to watch the game there. I was able to find a place in Lubbock, Texas out in the middle of nowhere in Texas, and there's a bar that opens up and starts serving alcohol, by the way, at 8 a.m., <laughs> which you don't see Texas. which you don't see everywhere in the country. And I I have met Liverpool fans in Lubbock freaking Texas, which I which would have been unthinkable even five years ago. So it's it's happening. You know, Grant, when when we were back in St. Louis this was May of 2014 for that panel discussion on is the United States becoming a soccer country. Mm-hmm. I can remember very well Clark Hunt, the uh, CEO of the Chiefs, but also um, the owner of FC Dallas, um, saying that in 25 years he thought soccer would be one of the big three sports in America. Mm-hmm. And you know, the follow-up to that was what what were the other two? So what was going to get thrown out? And he said it was going to be the NFL and the NBA and soccer, which I thought was a really brave thing to say in St. Louis, Missouri, <laughs> one of the best baseball cities in the country. But all trend lines are pointing in that direction. And um, I think it's, it's going to continue growing. And here in Austin, we're excited because – Austin has for years been the largest city in America that doesn't have a major league team. And next spring, 2021, Austin FC goes, goes on board and, and, uh, Austin gets its own MLS team. And so that's going to be, that's going to be interesting. And it's, it's a great time to be a soccer fan of any stripe in the United States. Yeah. What's your sense of the vibe down in Austin around this MLS team? And, and what are your thoughts? Are you going to be interested I'm I'm going to be interested. I'm still. Uh, I think I might go in with some friends on maybe getting a half of a season ticket. Mm-hmm. I'm. Um, I still have some some issues with MLS. I still. Um, Such as. Uh, they should have promotion relegation. I understand why they don't. Um, I think it would be better in the long term for the league if they could find a way to play. It, their season when every other major soccer league in the world plays its season. Um, I think that the, the league will be better respected and make more sense if they more, more closely observe international play dates. Um, and I, you know, I think that there's, there is a happy medium between the American system of playoffs and the system in the rest of the world where, you know, you just play home and home throughout the season and that's it. And I still think there's far too many teams in, in the playoffs to, to make much sense. Um, I I could go on another 20 minutes, but let me stop here. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, I, I know that the quality of MLS has improved. It's going to be exciting having a, 
a team built from scratch. I think it's better in a karmic sense that that it's going to be an expansion team rather than stealing the team from Columbus. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's going to be really interesting to see if it takes off here the way it has taken off in Portland and Seattle and Kansas City and Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is still part of me that, um, you know, I was there when Sporting Park opened in Kansas City. I took my kids in 2011. And I love that team. And it, I don't think I will go watch the Austin team play the Kansas City team. I think I okay. will just – I will sit that one out. But I'm I'm interested and I'm excited. And one question I've always had for you is you're a big NFL guy. Um, and not everyone who is a big NFL person who – uh, is in, you know, our age group. You're a little older than me. Um, like has, <laughs> has not everyone has embraced soccer. I mean, there's still some resistance out yeah, there but, to soccer. You know, it's much less than it used to be. I mean, I can remember who was the who was the radio guy who hated soccer. Jim, uh, Jim Rome, the guy with the, <laughs> the takes, you know, and, and DeFord disliked soccer. Um, and the, the, the sort of the education of the American soccer fan has been a long process. I can remember reading USA Today. I think it was, I can't remember if it was 98 or I think it was probably 2002 in Korea and Japan when USA Today did its World Cup preview. And I was so happy because it was the first time they'd done a World Cup preview in which they had not felt it necessary to explain that only the goalkeeper could handle the ball. <laughs> it was like they assumed enough intelligence on the part of the average reader that they know that the other outfield players can only kick it. They can't use their hands. And I felt like, okay, we've, we're, we're getting somewhere. And now, you know, we were just talking about this yesterday. Al Michaels on primetime NFL game mm-hmm. is promoing the Liverpool Spurs match next Saturday. <laughs> and it's, it's still somewhat surreal to find that there are, you know, there is this growing audience, but I, you know, and, and it's a great season right now for Liverpool. So I understand this is not the norm, but I often get to the pub before it opens because if I want a good table, you you got to get there early, you know, um, because there's so much interest, and it's it's great to see, and it's great that um, other people are getting to enjoy the beautiful game. And I still love the NFL. I still love watching football, but I love watching soccer as well. It's not like, you know, it's not a zero sum game. You right. can love both games, and there's, you know, there's something uh, in in the similarity between the two sports not just having 11 players aside, but that sense of outdoors, natural grass, that sense of gravity that comes to the game. I think that's harder to get with, with indoor sports like basketball, which, which I love as well. But there is this component to both soccer and football that's, that's hard to duplicate elsewhere. Yeah. And before we get into the Chiefs a little bit here, I, I should say, full disclosure here, you and I sat in Arrowhead Stadium last year for the AFC Championship game, thinking we were finally going to get back to the Super Bowl in one of the coldest days I've ever experienced in my life. And when, after overtime, uh, the Chiefs had lost to the Patriots, I think we sat there in the cold, kind of motionless for about 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah, Um, that was... (laughs) That was like every bad ending to every awful sports game you can remember all in one all in one package and plus with numbed extremities as well. <laughs> I, I, I will not soon forget that seven seconds of jubilation yeah. where Traverius Ward picked off Tom Brady and just complete bedlam and hysteria 
of thinking we're we're going to the Super Bowl and we have slayed the evil empire. And then, oh wait, is that is that a flag in the field? That is a flag in the field. And um, I I think in that instance, I knew without even hearing the call that the flag was on us, that yeah. the Patriots were going to drive down and win the game, and that the misery was going to continue. So yes. <laughs> Thanks we shared that we shared that moment of trauma together. <laughs> so you're going to be at the Chiefs playoff game this weekend against the Houston Texans. Um, you have a good record of being on site for these Chiefs playoff games. Uh, are the Chiefs, in your opinion, is there any uh, you know is there much that's similar to Liverpool? Well, I, I would say this: um, Patrick Mahomes was on the cover of Madden this year. Virgil van Dyke was on the cover of FIFA. Um, I think you could objectively say that the most exciting, most fun to watch team in pro football is the Chiefs. And you could make the same statement about Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Uh, my buddy Rob is also a Chiefs fan. You know, we, we have said at various times over, over the last couple of years, it's just not ever going to get any better than where it is right now. Mm-hmm. Because everywhere we turn, we've got awesome team with awesome players and it's um i've been through a lot of dark years for both of those teams (laughs) and i know that you know you have a connection uh, like you you have a connection with the chiefs going back to when you were a kid when you were growing up and and they were your heroes and to to continue that obsession into adulthood and into um senility not that long for me um i think that i think that it means it it means not just a diversion not just a leisure activity it is this connection with with your past and it's uh it's one of those things that i don't know how long i'm going to keep going to arrowhead stadium for playoff games but i haven't missed a playoff game at arrowhead stadium yet and and i love watching this team and they are they are like the Liverpool team, um, very human, but but mostly very likable. And Mahomes is the magic unicorn quarterback we've been waiting for all our lives. And now that he's here, it's it's great to see, and it's really fun to watch. Do I do I think they're going to go to the Super Bowl this year? I don't know because the Baltimore Ravens have their own magic unicorn quarterback. Right. Um, if we get past the Houston Texans this week, but it's, um, it is a lot of fun to watch and it's a lot of fun to be there in the moment when you don't know what's going to happen. And you're, you know, I, I, let me say this, it would have been great if there wasn't an offside call. Um, <laughs> and we celebrated together the chiefs going to the super bowl, but I'm still glad I went. I'm still glad yeah. I spent the money. I'm still glad I got to experience it with a, with another true believer such as yourself. Yeah, uh, that I feel the same way. A um, few more questions here. I've kept you on longer than I told you I would, so thank you. Um, it, in terms of the Chiefs in Liverpool, if the Chiefs were to win the Super Bowl this year and Liverpool were to win the Premier League, how would that change your sports fandom moving forward? <laughs> Um, this is an excellent question. Um, one of the things Neil and I have been going back and forth about in recent letters was, uh, in how much in percentage points, how much has your life improved by Liverpool being awesome? Um, (laughs) and it's, I, I speculated that, you know, it, it sort of prompts the question, how high a number can you give and still be considered a serious person? And then, then the, the corollary to that is how important is it to be considered a serious person? Um, I think for uh, for the Chiefs, uh, when they won their last Super Bowl, I was six years old. And so it, it's a little bit like uh, Nick Hornby writing in Fever Pitch about never having wanted, any, wanted anything as long as he wanted Arsenal to win the league. And so I, I, I feel that with the Chiefs. And Liverpool has never won the league since I've been following them, which has only been 22 years or so. But it's um, in both of those cases, I would feel like 
okay, we've finally reached the Holy Grail. And what I don't know, because I don't have any experience with it, um, is what it would be like on the other side. Would I be less frantic? Would I be less obsessive? Would I spend less time worrying before games, after winning the title than I have in the past, based on um, how much time Rob and I spend fretting over Liverpool and the Chiefs? Um, maybe not. Maybe that's part of part of the experience of being a sports fan. But I would also say this. The Champions League final in Madrid last June, where Liverpool played Spurs, was the most pressurized game I can remember in my sports fan's life. Uh Because if Liverpool had lost that game, Mm -hmm. I don't know how this team would have been able to absorb that without major changes. Um, I don't know how Klopp would have dealt with losing. I think that would have been his sixth straight final. I don't know how Jordan Henderson could have come back after captaining two straight Champions League losers. And that team, with that storybook season, to not come away with anything would have been devastating. So I I think that... um, that moment and that game felt as grave and as serious as almost any athletic event I've witnessed simply because knowing the modern media landscape, it would have been just ugly to have seen what the response would have been if they had lost that game. And not just from the media, also from a lot of Liverpool supporters. And that's just one of the curses of the games being so big and social media being so large. Uh, when things are good, everybody goes crazy. When things are bad, everybody goes crazy. Um, and I'm glad they avoided that. I felt more relief than jubilation. <laughs> I want to finish up by asking you about some of the stuff you're involved in with the University of Texas and sports writing and recognizing sports writing there, because I think it's pretty cool. You wrote a a book on the history of Sports Illustrated called The Franchise. That's the first time I actually ever knew who you were. I had just started at Sports Illustrated it was in the 90s, and it was an excellent way for me to get a sense of not just the history, some of which I knew, but certainly not all of it, uh, but the personalities of these mythical figures to me, the, the writers of Sports Illustrated. Um, what are you doing with UT in sports writing? Well, the franchise was, as you know, a labor of love, and it it sold very well within a five-block radius of the Time and Life building in New York City, (laughs) but I am still surprised at how many um, young writers did make it a point to read that, and a lot of them were at SI. Um, When I got back to Austin in 2015, I met some of the people at UT, and they had already had Frank DeFord's papers here. And there was an annual um, address given by some prominent person in sports media um, in the spring. And I suggested, you know, you've, you've also got Dan Jenkins just up the road in Fort Worth. It would be nice to, to do something with him as well. So UT started the Dan Jenkins Medal for Excellence in Sports Writing. And Dan was around for the... Uh, for the first two years of that, he passed away last year, so he missed the, the most recent one. But it was great getting him a victory lap. It was great finding a way to honor the best sports writing. Um, and the, the committee, which I co-chair along with Dan's daughter, Sally Jenkins, of the Washington Post, gives out two awards a year, one for best sports writing of the previous year and one for lifetime achievement in sports writing. Um, Gary Smith of Sports Illustrated was was honored as the Lifetime Achievement Award uh, winner last year, and um, we are going to be uh, taking nominations for Best Sports Writing of the Year soon. And it's been great to see a, a lot of heroes I had growing up, people like Dave Kindred, um, coming back and and getting their moment in the sun. And it's just at a, at a time when. As you are well aware, the art of sports writing is going through a great deal of flux. It's nice to have a group of 
peers recognizing the best of us. Um, and I think it's a, it's a wonderful, it, it is a wonderful dinner. The dinner is usually in September, October. This past year we had, uh, Jack Nicholas was one of the guests of honor and, um, he talked a little bit about his experience with Jenkins and it was, it was a terrific time. I do want to ask you, by the way, I forgot, I promised this was my last question, the last one, uh, your book, the new one, The 69 Chiefs, A Team, A Season, and the Birth of Modern Kansas City. Uh, I have a copy. It's terrific. Uh, coffee table book. Uh, what is it? How did it come about? I was, you may have had this with one of your books, but I woke up in the middle of the night a couple of years ago and realized that this 69 Chiefs team which was a historic team in a number of respects. It was the first team in pro football history in which a majority of the starters were African-American. Hmm. Um, and it also had six Hall of Famers on its defense, one of the great defenses in NFL history. Um, that season was such a season of trauma and adversity. And I realized if that story was ever going to be told, it was going to need to be told the 50th anniversary year of the team while some of those guys were still around. Right. And I realized that if, if it was going to be told, I, I was probably going to have to be the one to do it. And so I, um, I reached out to the excellent underrated photographer, Rod Hanna, who was the team photographer that season. Uh, and he had all these great pictures of the team from when he was, had free roaming of the sidelines. <laughs> and so, um, they were in this safety deposit box in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And I said, you know, Rod, I want to do this, but I, we got to use your pictures. And he was amenable. And I think the, the book turned out looking great. Yeah. And it was, it was fun to tell the story. And I knew if it was ever going to get told, it had to be this year. So that um, went to the top of the heap. Nice. Well, uh, thank you, Michael McCambridge, for coming on the show. Good luck to Liverpool and the Kansas City Chiefs. Thank you very much. Um, hopefully we will have a happier ending to this season than we had <laughs> last one. Yes, sir. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Michael McCambridge as well as producer Harry Swartout and everyone at Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Remember, if you like the podcast, it would really help us if you go to Apple Podcasts and provide a rating and a review. It helps people find us, and we'd appreciate you recommending the podcast to someone you know. See you next time.